Hello, I'm Chris Hussey from the Bite Size Tales Flash Fiction Audio Podcast, and you're listening to Tale of the Manticore. The following podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to Tale of the Manticore, Season 2. Like the creature from which it takes its name, Tale of the Manticore is a mashup, a crossbreeding between two different species of storytelling. Here, you will find the unpredictability of old-school RPG paper and dice games with the storycraft of a dark fantasy novel. No character is sacred, and no character will be spared if the dice decide their fate is at hand. According to lore, the tale of a manticore is barbed with cruel iron spikes. There will be much pain in the days ahead. Last time on Tale of the Manticore. The conversation with Barrel Boy continues as Chapter 59 begins. It ends when Torum announces that it's time he went to fetch their contact, the mysterious Greenblood. As evening turns to night, the companions split up. Yellowfly goes off in search of Lord Rabbit. Jace looks for his mentor, Nudge, and the trio of Bazu, Catsbane, and Shawnee make for the Church of the Sacred Flame on the other side of town. Neither Yellowfly nor Jace get any fruit for their efforts, so our attention turns to the others. When the trio reaches the church, they quickly discover that it is no longer locked, neither is it empty. Some of the downtrodden of Silmoral have made a home in the main hall of worship, more than a score of them. One among them is a special NPC. Easley, the son of Janelle, who betrayed the party earlier in the story, is there. When Easley sees Shanae, he follows her, dagger in hand, with a mind full of scorpions and vengeance. The trio makes his job easier when they split ways. Catsbane goes into the library. Bazu moves through the chapel and beyond into Araness's inner sanctum. Shanae is left behind to wait, alone and totally exposed. But Easley has not mastered his craft, and he gives himself away before he can strike from concealment. A brief, vicious fight follows in which the would-be assassin is slain and dies cursing Shanae with his last breath. By the time Bazu and Katsbane hear their companion cry out and come hurrying back, the fight is already over. There is nothing to do but return to the Copper Dragon and rejoin the others. Well, that last encounter, the fight with Easley, has made me take yet another close look at my PCs. Are they, quote-unquote, good, alignment-wise? I still think they are. Chaotic or neutral good, I suppose, although they are extremely strict with their personal codes. Sure, they do not obey the laws of their monarch, but their monarch is, or was, a petty and selfish man. It's an interesting question, and I suppose it really comes down to relative morality and relative lawfulness, doesn't it? On a related topic, and I'm not sure how interesting this will be, so I'll keep it brief. I considered using the OSE advanced rules to make Easley into a true assassin. Although he technically is one, or tried to be one at any rate, he did not have the training, so the features of that class, namely disguise and poisoning, just didn't make any sense. While I'm here behind the DM screen, one other bit of housekeeping that isn't quite interesting enough to include in the narrative. Bazu is going to heal Shawnee when they get back to the Copper Dragon, using one or, if necessary, two Cure Light Wounds prayers. I'll just roll 2d6 to save time as he'll probably need both. 
Nine points of healing brings her back to full, so unless something very unexpected happens on the next day, the PCs can begin their adventure, and I feel that it will be the final adventure at their respective full capacities. Okay, enough wittering. Let's get into the story. Chapter 60, Part 1, Day 182, Around Midnight, Party Status, Yellowfly, 39 of 39 hit points, Sean A, 30 of 30, Jace, 37 of 37, Catsbane, 17 of 17, Bazoo, 16 of 16. Spells available, Catsbane has memorized, Invisibility, Mirror Image, and Haste. When they arrived at the Copper Dragon, they knocked on the door using a prearranged pattern, and Barrel Boy admitted them. Yellowfly and Jace, they discovered, had already returned more than an hour before. Yellowfly looked up to greet them and saw the distress on Shawnee's face right away. He said nothing. He knew her well enough to leave her alone. His longtime friend only very rarely wanted to talk through her feelings, and when she did, it was better to let her initiate the conversation. Shawnee nodded curtly at him, and, without stopping, went straight to her room. Jace had also retired immediately upon his return, so it was just Bazu and Catsbane who sat with Fly by the fire and told him the story of what had happened. Yellowfly listened intently, sighing as they reported the existence of the squatters in the church and the squalor of their living conditions. They then told him what had occurred with Easley. That explained Shawnee's troubled countenance well enough. Considering what she'd been through, he didn't blame her for wanting to be alone. When Yellowfly felt he had learned all there was to know about Easley's attack and about the city's poor living in the church, he asked about the general state of the city south of the Thurry Gate. Catsbane and Bazu told him of the lack of city watch patrols and the extortionate fee they had been forced to pay each way through the gate. It was an appalling example of corruption, but in light of the other things that had happened that night, it didn't amount to much. After only 30 minutes or so, Catsbane stretched and excused himself, saying he felt tired and reminding the other men that they had an early morning the next day. Catsbane did look tired, thought Yellowfly. For a young man, the shadows under his eyes were unnaturally deep. The young wizard took his leave and walked down the hall to his room. He let himself in, closed the door, set down the book he had taken from Ernest's library on the bedside table, pulled off his boots, and laid down on the bed fully clothed. He felt so tired, tired on the inside. Something was sapping his will, eroding his spirit. How long had it been since he had smiled or laughed? He fidgeted his thumb against the underside of his new ring, the one he had taken from Romola. He had never much cared for wearing jewelry. He was always so aware of having it on, and it irked him. Briefly, he considered taking it off, but then, deciding not to bother, closed his eyes and allowed sleep to come. Catsbane dreamed of his childhood. He was, once again, a boy of seven or eight. He was at his childhood home, in the kitchen where he had often spent time at his mother's side. Through the open window, where golden summer sunlight shone in, he could hear the sound of Ranger snorting and stomping his hooves. He trained his ear on the sound and presently heard what he had hoped to, his mother, Chinati, singing without words, just vocalizing and humming in the way she always did. A feeling of joy mingled with melancholy came over Catsbane as he remembered time before adulthood, time before pain and death became the company he shared. 
the dream was lucid and Catsbane found he could freely think and control his actions in it. If there was one thing he wanted above all others, it was to see his mother again, to hold her and smell her and tell her he loved her one more time. He walked through the kitchen door and into the main room of their house. In one corner was his mother's spinning wheel. There, on the wall, a row of hooks hung with tack and harness for the horses. His father's boots were not in their place by the door, always a good sign. He headed for it, but stopped when he passed his own tiny bedroom. The door to it was wide open, and Catsbane could not help but to pause a moment and look inside. How small his bed had been. And look, there on the pillow, sitting with its funny legs sticking straight out, was his favorite childhood toy, a stuffed bear he had named Honeypaw. As though drawn by a spell, he entered the little room, moved to the head of the bed, and picked up the toy bear with its mismatched button eyes and its mouth made from a stitched line of black thread. Catsbane regarded the sweet face of the doll. It was worn almost through in places. It had been loved that much. Although Catsbane did not notice, after he entered, the door to his room swung silently shut behind him. Perhaps it was because he was in a dream that Catsbane did not cast it away in shock when Honeypaw's eyes blinked to life and its mouth of black thread opened and he simply stood holding it and staring at it when it spoke. You're a naughty boy, Catsbane. It scolded him. And naughty boys get punished. It giggled horribly then. <laughs> there, there, that's all right. It said to Catsbane's souring face. Everyone is naughty. <laughs> everyone, everyone. <laughs> The last two words were said in an idiotic, sing-song way. Catsbane had recovered enough by now to fling the awful thing onto the bed, and he did so. Honeypaw rolled awkwardly onto his back, sat up, and rubbed one arm with a paw, pouting. Now it spoke again, but its voice was different. Where did you learn how to see in the dark, Phelan Orla? That is a useful cantrap. Would you not agree? Even in the knowledge that he was only dreaming, Catsbane felt cold terror wash over him. You have grown strong with remarkable speed. Are you not pleased? What? Who are you? Catsbane managed. I am your patron, and I know your true name, Phelan Orla. You know mine as well. Catsbane did know a name. He had learned it in the pages of one of Ernest's books. Was it in the very tome he had brought back with him? He said it aloud. Azorazul. At that exact moment, Catsbane awoke. He sat up in bed, blinking. A glint of light on metal caught his eye, and his gaze went to the ring on his hand with the spider design. Inexplicably, Catsbane realized he now knew exactly what it was and how to use it. The pale light of dawn was already peeking through the bars of his open window, on the night table, the book he had taken, Zygog's Pantology Demonium, it was titled, was open. When he had gone to bed, it had been closed. Had he been sleep reading? That was a disturbing thought. A gentle knock on his door interrupted his fretting. He rubbed his eyes and swung out of bed, but before he could answer, the knock came again, insistent. Then a voice. Catsbane, wake up. It was Yellowfly. Our contact has arrived.
Hello Weirdos, my name is Diogo Nogueira, and with Weird Games and Weirder People, you get to listen to weird and wonderful creators of the tabletop role-playing game space, talking about the weird in themselves and in the world. We talk about game design, art, creativity, spirituality, supernatural events, and a lot more. We go deep, we get weird, and we love it. So tune in and get weird with Weird Games and Weirder People wherever you listen to your podcasts. Chapter 60 Part 2 Day 183 Early Morning Party Status Yellowfly 39 of 39 hit points Shawnee 30 of 30 Jace 37 of 37 Catsbane 17 of 17 Bazu 16 of 16 Spells available Catsbane has memorized Magic Missile, times two. Invisibility, Mirror Image, Haste, and Slow. Bazu has prayed for Cure Light Wounds, times two. Bless, and Silence, 15-foot radius. Catsbane was the last to arrive at the meeting with the man Torum had called Greenblood. His daily study had taken longer than usual because he had decided not to prepare the spell of Infravision, as was his custom. When he eventually joined his companions, they, along with Barrel Boy and their erstwhile guide, were all arranged around the small dining table where they had taken their supper the night before. Greenblood was there. A stiff-backed man, somewhat short in stature, he yet maintained a lofty air of dignity and command. A deep scowl was etched into his stony face. He was looking daggers at Yellowfly, who had presumably just posed a question. Let's get a few things straight. You do not ask questions of me about the Queen, or anything else for that matter. Furthermore, I am not hiring you, nor do I beg your favor. I do not admire your gang, or your previous accomplishments. Here, the man's face went especially sour. He looked as though he would like to say more about that, but evidently decided to refrain. Instead, he concluded with, If I had anyone else, I would send them, but I find myself in a certain position. The man spoke as though he were chewing rocks. Very well then, said Yellowfly, his own expression betraying nothing. You get us through the Cernan Gate and into the palace, and in return we'll share whatever we learn about the king. Proof, if he is dead. His signet ring, something like that. Uh, proof if he is dead, as we agreed. The conversation seemed to be nearing its conclusion, and Catsbane realized they'd been talking for some time before he'd even arrived. Your people are ready? The man looked at each of them in turn, when he locked eyes with Catsbane, the young wizard felt a sudden flash of recognition. There was a beard where there had once been a smooth face. There was a hood pulled up where normally Catsbane was used to seeing a half-helm. But unmistakably, this green blood was none other than Captain Sindwan. He wondered if Sindwan recognized him, too. The other man's face was impassive. Good. We leave immediately. It was a command, not an offer. He rose from his seat and strode from the room. Catsbane and the others, already in their armor, donned cloaks, grabbed their weapons and packs, and followed him out. Greenblood, a.k.a. Captain Sindwan, is a loyalist, and his goal is to see the monarchy restored to its former power. He doesn't believe that the question of the king's moral integrity is any concern of his. The captain's duty is to serve the king and the king's law, that is all. It galls him that he must resort to working with thieves and lowlifes in order to learn what is happening inside Whitestone Castle but at the time being, this is his only real option. 
He notes that Sergeant Koch, the man he despises and who despises him in return, sent a number of scouting parties to Whitestone and that none returned. The Royal Guard he once commanded is no more, but Sindwan has long kept plants in the City Watch and it is through them that he has gotten his intelligence. Some of these contacts are working the Cernan Gate today and Sindwan is relying on them to achieve their passage through to the castle. There is one problem. The number of guards posted at the Cernan Gate has been greatly increased and not all of the men there are in Sindwan's close confidence. The hope is that those few who are loyal to him can sway the others. I haven't rolled any dice yet in this episode, so let's add a random element here. I'll begin with the decision that Sindwan is a man of impressive charisma. I'm giving him a score of 15 by DM Fiat, and using this score, I'll make a skill check. A d20 will determine success or failure. Lower is better on this kind of roll under stat check. A 16 or 19 would indicate some kind of trouble, price, or a fail forward situation. A 20 would be a critical fail and would have consequences. Let's see what the dice gods say. Rolling a d20 and hoping for a low number this time. A 13 is a pass. I have no idea what I would have done if I'd rolled a 20. A non-critical fail would have indicated a demand for a hefty bribe, but I think in this case, the guards loyal to Sindwan simply managed to convince the others that the Companion's passage has been authorized. The next stage of the Companion's progress will be much easier. Simple, actually, since Sindwan still has a full set of keys. He plans to let them in through the guard rooms on the eastern side of the castle, opposite Carrick's tower. You know, up until now I haven't felt the need to map out Whitestone Castle, but it's clear to me that for what is to come, I am going to need to do that. Let's take a moment and give this the proper treatment it deserves. Between the Lines Whitestone Castle there's a couple of reasons why it's important to actually map out Whitestone Castle in full, and not just abstract it in the way I have in the past with other large and complicated locations. The main reason is, of course, the presence of Krell, the previous captain now cursed to live as a Yethound. Because Yethounds are so sensitive to sunlight, and because it's currently morning, the layout of the castle will determine where Krell could be, and also the places he would avoid. To make a castle that feels somewhat real, I've decided to use the floor plan from a real castle as a base for modification. The ground floor is more or less modeled on a place called Casaloma, a castle located here in Midtown Toronto, unlikely as that might sound. The second and third floors will be my own design, same with the dungeon underneath. That dungeon will be a whole other challenge, and best put aside until it's required. I think we need to talk about Camertine's history for a minute. Whitestone Castle was built atop the barrows and ruins discovered by the ancient Camors approximately six centuries before the events of this story. Before there was ever a castle, there was a mott and bailey built by Queen Adelith. The next great construction was commissioned by King Saega of the Axe, who replaced King Bertum in the year 125. Saega tore down the bailey and erected a keep. More than a century passed before this keep was, in turn, expanded into a full castle and palace by the Regent Thury. Whitestone Castle, then, has been standing for about four centuries. During that time, it has undergone extensive renovations and additions. It has vacillated between the two functions of being primarily a military structure and being a place of decadence that serves to demonstrate Camertine's wealth and power. Under Culfrey, who saw no major wars in his lifetime and fought no battles at his own gate, the castle has evolved to suit his pleasures. Today, Whitestone is a place of opulence and comfort. It's worth mentioning that some of the modifications made under Culfrey were the constructions of numerous secret passages. 
For the most part, these provide conduits for servants to move about unseen by courtesans to spare them the vulgarity of having to observe menial labor. These secret passages were used by Briar Patches in his escape, you may remember. As with so many things in a story like this, whether the PCs come across these secret passages or whether it even matters if they do, all depends on the will of the dice. As I mentioned before, in the past, I avoided large maps and instead used zones. The reason that I'm not going to do that again here is that Tale of the Manticore is an experiment in fiction, and I'm curious if a fully developed map could work. The map I've prepared has three levels above ground, and a little over 60 rooms. Real English castles often had in excess of 100 rooms, but for the sake of manageability, I'm going to go ahead and say this is more than plenty. Most of it will never even be used after all. One detail I won't skimp on, however, is light. Knowing which rooms have it and which don't will probably be of paramount importance in the near future. Whitestone Castle backs onto a cliff face and overlooks Blue Heron Lake, so all rooms on that side, and hallways of appropriate length, will have unbarred windows equipped with shutters. The only glass will be in the castle's two stained glass windows on the second floor, one in the Royal Chapel and the other in the Queen's private chamber. Windows that do not overlook the cliff will be barred or else they'll just be arrow slits, depending on the type of room. The only rooms that have an exterior wall but do not have windows will be storage rooms, the pantry, and the servants' quarters on the first floor. Not all shuttered windows will be open, of course. It was winter when the place was abandoned, after all. I think the chance of a window being open is 2 in 6, so I'll rule for it as the companions make their way from room to room. I don't see any reason not to make the first roll right now, in advance, to save having to break up the narrative later on. Here goes, on a d6. A 5. That means the first window they encounter will be closed. From here, I need a way to figure out where Krell is at any given moment. It's tempting to dream up a bunch of mechanics at this point, but I don't want to ruin the fiction by over-gamifying it. I've got my light mechanic, and, you know, I think a simple wandering monster check every two turns, that's 20 minutes of exploration time, are all I really need. Let's start with those and only add more as becomes necessary. One last thing. Those secret doors I mentioned earlier, I've decided not to include them on the map. Call it another experiment, but I'm going to see if I can surprise myself with their location. No special mechanic is needed here either. If the PCs have reason to search for a secret door, I'll roll as the rules stipulate, and then, if their search is successful, I'll figure out if there might actually be something there. Okay, with all of that out of the way, I think it is finally time for the PCs to enter Whitestone Castle. Chapter 60 Part 3 Day 183 Early Morning Party Status the party's status is unchanged. The morning sun struck the clouds in such a way as to make it look like a celestial artist had smeared gold paint across the heavens. The massive stones of Whitestone Castle's foundation, by contrast, were dark and ugly. Typically, on a fair morning such as this, they would have found the castle exterior gleaming and white, with the castle grounds animated by the hubbub of daily life. But it was not like that today. Neglect and a hard winter had stained the walls gray, and a blotchy black mold spattered their surface. The front doors were shut, chained, and locked. The courtyard was silent, devoid of any sign of life. Everything about Whitestone Castle warned an interloper to turn back. The man who called himself Greenblood took it all in with obvious disdain, and led them past the main entrance to a stout iron-banded door on the east side. 
When he arrived, he turned to look Yellowfly in the eyes. Proof if the king is no more, he reminded him. Why, and you'll have your proof on our return, Yellowfly said, and then suddenly realized something. You'll not come with us. I cannot. If something should go wrong, it is important that I remain under the notice of certain parties. You're afraid to be associated with certain kinds of individuals, Yellowfly countered. Afraid? Hardly. Or do you angle for pity? You will not have it. The man huffed out his nose in distaste. <laughs> I believe this is where I take my leave. Vesseluna guide you, and farewell. Farewell, then, said Yellowfly, gesturing that Greenblood should open the door. The other man produced a ring of keys, easily found the right one, fitted into the lock, and pushed the thick door open. The companions entered a hallway that ran away to the right for 40 feet and terminated at a door. Sunlight stitched in through regularly spaced arrow slits. Directly across from them, a plain archway led into another hall, then off into darkness. They could make out a pair of unlit torches set in sconces in the gloom. The door shut behind them, and then even the mild sounds from outside were gone. Inside the castle, it was silent, dark, and cold. Why does he want proof of Colfrey's death if that's what we find out? Asked Shane. Well, I don't think he trusts us very far. Whoever he is, he understands that evidence showing that Colfrey is dead could cause a significant amount of trouble. The king didn't have any heirs. And did you notice? Those were his keys. I did, yes, replied Shane. At this moment, Catsbane decided to share what he knew. I'm fairly certain that man was the former captain of the Royal Guard, a man named Sinwan. Yellowfly made a face. Fairly certain, he echoed. You lived here for how long? I spent almost every minute in Carrick's Tower, said Catsbane, holding up a hand in a gesture of defense. I've seen many parts of the castle, most of them at one point or another, yes, but I lived a world apart from most of the other residents. It doesn't matter, Yellowfly replied. And we won't know what we're looking for until we find it anyway. Well, I suppose we should make our way to the King's Chambers. Do you know how to get there, by any chance? Catsbane shook his head. I only know they're on the second floor. Then we're looking for a staircase. At this moment, Shawnee leaned in to whisper something to Yellowfly. The fighter's eyes briefly flicked down the dark hallway through the arch. He nodded as she pulled away, then announced, We'll stick to places that have some light. This way. Then he turned to the right and walked down the sun-striped hall. Thank you for listening to Tale of the Manticore. If you enjoy the show and would like to help to support it, there are lots of ways to do so. You can recommend it online or to friends. You can like and repost episode announcements on social media. You can pick up One Shot in the Dark, the Pendulum World Building Tool, or Encyclopedia Manticorica on DriveThruRPG. And finally, you can rate or review the show on your podcatcher of choice. Thanks to everyone for their support of the show. At this time, please allow me to share one of your kind reviews. This one is by B-A-R-L-T-C-R on Apple Podcasts. B-A-R-L-T-C-R writes, Great pod, taking me back to the 80s. Happened on it from the Grognard Files. Hope you keep at it. Thanks for the kind review, B-A-R-L-T-C-R. I certainly plan to keep at it. I feel that this kind of storytelling has limitless potential, and that there are a million stories to tell. In fact, I'd encourage anyone listening to grab a mic and make their own. Very happy that you heard about the show through the Grognard Files, too. I'm definitely a big fan and never miss an episode. I'm equally grateful for the people who breathe life into my characters. This episode features the talents of Kai Allen, playing his usual role of Catsbane, and returning actor Tim of the Dungeon Dads podcast. Both of these actors delivered top-notch performances, and I'm truly indebted to them. Thanks very much, Kai Allen and Tim. For listeners who would like to get in touch with me, I am at Manticore Tale on X or Tale of the Manticore Podcast on Instagram, and there's always email. 
talewiththemanticore at gmail.com. Finally, I keep a blog where I post all kinds of show and RPG-related stuff, like art, maps, tables, crafts, and show notes. You can find it at taleofthemanticore.blogspot.com. The adventure will continue on the next episode of Tale of the Manticore, the story where chaos rolls. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Five Gems in a Trench Coat. Excuse me? Yeah? What's that? You want to know what Five Gems in a Trench Coat is? Let us tell you. It's the adhesive that keeps the fragile pieces of my sanity together. Well, okay, Jesse, what it actually is, is a narrative-driven TTRPG actual play where five friends take turns weaving stories through the tabletop game of their choice. Of their choice? Each season? Each season. That's pretty cool. I disagree. Oh. I feel it's the adhesive. (laughs) (laughs) So, like, you guys aren't all in a trench coat? No, we're definitely in a trench coat. How How does that work? Get her. Before I'm caught, you can check out Five Games in a Trench Coat just about anywhere you get your podcasts, or you can check out our website at fivegamesinatrenchcoat.com. Oh my god, they really are all in a trench coat. <laughs>